you will recall, if you were here last week, that um, Paul has been travelling around doing his missionary thing with his little band of partners. He's recently, at the beginning of uh, the chapter, added Timothy to that group, um, which for Timothy involved um, circumcision for reasons which, if you want to understand, you should listen to last week's um, talk. And they have been trying to work out where to go, where to go on the next step of the mission. And they've been diverted in various different ways, um, which aren't actually really explained in the text. We only hear that God wouldn't let them go one way and wouldn't let them go another way. And then they have a dream uh, calling them over into Macedonia. And so that's where they're going now as we pick up at Acts 16, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea, sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. So Philippi, as a Roman colony, the idea was that basically Rome had a lot of soldiers. Uh, When they'd finished soldiering, Rome wanted somewhere to put them, partly as a reward for their service and partly so that they could plant Romans across the empire and thereby create a sense of uh, loyalty to the mother city. So that is what has happened at Philippi. A bunch of Roman citizens who had served their time in the legions and maybe a few other people as well have been plonked down in Philippi. It was a town already, but the Romans have taken over. So it's it's a little mini-Rome. That's the way to think of it. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Now we know that um, Paul's normal practice when he arrived in the city was to go to the synagogue. He doesn't do that here, uh, which probably indicates that there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. There probably weren't enough Jews. And actually the fact that when he goes to the place of prayer, he only finds women there, might indicate why there is not a synagogue. You need 10 adult male Jews to constitute a synagogue so that their their meetings wouldn't count. They wouldn't be valid worship. So there are just women meeting outside the city to pray. Um, They are, however, women who are Jews or affiliated in some way to Judaism. They're praying to the God of the Bible. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. So Lydia is a worshipper of God. That probably means she is a Gentile woman who has attached herself to Judaism. She is interested in Judaism, she wants to align herself with Judaism, she's not gone the whole hog and actually converted to Judaism, she's sort of on the periphery. Actually it would have been very difficult for her to convert in Philippi because there were certain rites involved which they wouldn't have been able to carry out. So maybe she wanted to but couldn't, we don't know. Either way she's on the edge of the Jewish community in Philippi such as it is and she believes in the Lord. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. Literally and brilliantly, she had a python spirit, which um, 
I think sounds much more exciting than a spirit that predicted the future, but actually wouldn't have been for her. A python spirit, the python was a symbol of Apollo. Apollo was the Greek and Roman god most associated with telling the future. Um, the, the oracle at Delphi, where people went to inquire about their futures, that was dedicated to Apollo. So this is a, a slave girl with a spirit which is associated, at least in the minds of those around her, with a pagan god. Um, as a complete aside, uh, it's very interesting to see how the New Testament tackles those pagan gods. Um, on the one hand, it sees them as empty nothings, creations of human beings. You know, Apollo doesn't exist. People thought him up. Um, and that's why Paul can say in, in other places... You can eat meat sacrificed to idols. After all, an idol is nothing. It's nothing at all. But on the other hand, according to the New Testament, there are evil spiritual powers, and they do piggyback on these human creations of idols and use them to corrupt and pervert people. So, at the same time as Paul can say, an idol is nothing, feel free to eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol, he can also say, but don't join in a feast in an idol temple because then you would be joining yourself to demons. So for Paul, and for the New Testament as a whole, pagan gods are nothing, but evil spirits are real, and they will use those pagan religions to get one over on people. I actually think that's quite a helpful way, if indeed a very offensive way in our culture, to approach the question of other religions generally. They're human creations, but the devil isn't above using them to enslave people. Anyway, back into the passage. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed... <coughs> that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that her hope, their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Um, this is technically accurate as an accusation. Um, Rome claimed a monopoly on deciding what you could and couldn't worship. Um, Jews were actually allowed to worship the Jewish God because the Romans were also very keen that people carry on doing whatever their ancestors had done. That was very important to them. Non-Jews were not allowed to do it so the accusation is true, albeit motivated entirely by the fact that they're losing money and also a little bit of handy anti-Semitism thrown in. We know that anti-Semitism was rife in Rome and amongst Roman culture, so it's not surprising that the, uh, the lead accusation is actually these men are Jews. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, 
and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them, probably because they couldn't get to sleep. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all of the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Now, the jailer is probably a hard guy. He's almost certainly an old Roman soldier. Uh, he, um, but he, he knows full well what will happen if the prisoners escape. He can't go to his superiors and say, it wasn't my fault, there was an earthquake. He will be ruined and possibly killed. So he thinks he's going to just jump the gun and do it himself. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptised. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. As well they might be. You could not do this to a Roman citizen in the ancient world. It would have been death for them to do it. You could do it to other people, but not to Romans. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. And then they left. So this is Paul's time in Philippi. Um, the church that he founds here gets a letter in the New Testament and they go down, I would say, judging by the correspondence, as one of Paul's favourites. He likes it here. On the other hand, he looks back on his time in Philippi in the Thessalonian correspondence as a time where he struggled and suffered. So there's 
mixed feelings in Paul's correspondence about Philippi. And it is a fascinating account of these three encounters. Three conversions, I think we're meant to read them as. The slave girl is not specifically described as having become a believer, but the way her story is sandwiched in between Lydia's and the jailer's, I think that is the way Luke intends us to read it. Three encounters, which actually give us, if you like, a worked example of what is going on in the whole of the book of Acts. So to put this um, into the context of the whole of the book of Acts, you'll remember, you may remember, way, way back in uh, chapter 1, the risen Christ gave a commission to his apostles, go into all the world and preach. They're to go, they're to be his witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that immediately set up a couple of questions because as soon as he has given this commission, in the narrative at least, Jesus departs, he ascends to heaven. And we are left thinking, how is this going to happen? How is this going to happen in the absence of Jesus? If we're at all familiar with the Gospels, and Luke would assume that his readers were at least familiar with Luke's Gospel, we know that the disciples have not shown themselves to be particularly (coughs) awesome in any respect. How will it happen that the Gospel will go out to the ends of the earth? And we've seen, as the story has unfolded, that the way it will happen is through the work of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus' faithful disciples. And here is a snapshot of what that looks like. And I want to say three things about it. First thing is this. Paul's mission in Philippi is empowered by Christ. We're left in no doubt as we read this passage that Jesus is actively directing events. I think actually it's interesting that the sort of the balance of human and divine action in each story shifts in different ways. In each case, Paul and sometimes Silas are involved. And in each case, God is involved. But sometimes the balance seems different. So at the beginning, Paul does what he would logically do. He goes to the place where he is most likely to find people who will be receptive to the gospel. And he speaks to somebody who is indeed receptive to the gospel, and she becomes a believer. Great, logical, sensible. It makes a sensible plan. But, right in the middle there, in verse 14, we read, the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord in the New Testament is almost always the Lord Jesus, not just God generically or God the Father, almost always the Lord Jesus. So even here, in the place where it seems logical that people would respond to the gospel, it takes a direct work of Jesus in her heart to enable Lydia to understand and respond to what Paul is saying. And then as we go on, that sort of intertwining of human and divine gets more tilted towards the divine, if you like. The encounter with the slave girl is fascinating. 
Um, to us in our, our Western world, it, I think, makes us slightly uncomfortable, all this talk of evil spirits and so on and so forth. We're not that keen on believing in the spiritual world, um, even though we're theoretically committed to believing in God. Um, we don't like all this talk of spirits. It seems a bit backward. But the New Testament is clear there are evil spirits out there as well as good ones. And the way that Paul deals with it, I think, is intriguing just from a human point of view. Because for several days, for several days, this girl follows them around, shouting out, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And Paul does nothing. Now, it could be because he's thinking, hey, any publicity is good publicity. But I think that's probably not the case. Because Paul knows that a pagan, hearing this girl shout out about the Most High God, will probably not be thinking of the God of the Bible. They'll be thinking of Zeus. He was the Most High God, Jupiter in the Roman language. This is actually not welcome publicity. It's a distraction from what they're trying to do. But Paul doesn't do anything for some time, for many days. And then it says, finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. Now, I just think, humanly speaking, what is going on here is a bit strange and a bit questionable. Why does Paul not act straight away? Why, in the end, when he does act, is it just because he's irritated with the girl shouting at them all the time? I don't think we have to airbrush that stuff out and try to make Paul a perfect human being. I think we can say, look, sometimes Paul was preoccupied with doing other stuff, and sometimes Paul acted out of irritation. But in Luke's story, that is almost beside the point. Because it is even Paul's weakness that God uses to free this girl from possession by an evil spirit. Paul's mission is empowered by Christ. And that is nowhere clearer than in the third encounter. Paul is in jail with Silas at midnight, singing. And suddenly there is this earthquake. Now, the remarkable thing about this earthquake to me is that it shakes all of the prisoners out of their chains and into freedom, but apparently doesn't injure or kill anyone at all. That is a, that is a precision earthquake. <laughs> We're not in the realm of the natural here. We're in the realm of the rule of the Lord Jesus over all things. And specifically, we are in the realm of the Lord Jesus directing the mission of his apostles and sending his gospel out. It is Jesus' name that contains the power which Paul needs for his mission. It is the Lord Jesus who opens Lydia's heart. It is in the name of Jesus Christ that Paul casts a demon out of a slave girl. And 
It is by believing in the name of the Lord Jesus that the jailer and all his household will be saved. Now we need to get that straight. It's not like there's some magical quality to the name of Jesus. I've, I've come across that sort of idea that if we attach in Jesus' name to the end of a prayer, then that means it's definitely going to happen. Um, I don't think it's that. That's not the way it works. But the point here is, Paul and Silas and the team are relying on the Lord Jesus. If the mission in Philippi is going to work, and if there are going to be any results, they are relying on the Lord Jesus. And he shows his power. He shows his power by opening Lydia's heart. He shows his power by driving out demons. And he shows his power by shaking the earth in such a specific way that prisoners will be freed and a jailer will come to know him as Lord. This is Christ-empowered mission. But secondly, it's Christ-shaped mission. see that in a number of ways. We see it in the way that Paul looks for Jews first. We know that that was part of Paul's overall missionary strategy. And it wasn't just because he liked the Jews best. It was because he was seeing what Jesus had done. He had gone to the Jews first. And Paul carries that over. But we see it most dramatically in weakness and suffering. This is where I think we go wrong with power. We say, God is powerful. Jesus is powerful. Therefore, we are safe from bad stuff. I um, had the misfortune to be forced to sing a song uh, recently the lyrics of which I can't exactly remember. But the gist of it was, our God is bigger and stronger and greater than all your gods. And uh, I thought, that's true. <coughs> that's true. But how did that work out for Jesus? It worked out in crucifixion and death. And we need to understand that. Paul and Silas understand that. For Paul and Silas, going on Christ-empowered mission means being beaten with rods and thrown into jail. See, it's not the kind of power that delivers them from that stuff. It's the kind of power that enables them to undergo that stuff and then still be awake at midnight singing songs of praise to God. And then it's the kind of power that rescues them out of that situation. It's kind of death and resurrection shaped power. It's kind of Jesus shaped power. I think um, that I often think about the, the power of God in the same way that I think about gravity. I don't think about gravity. I don't understand it. As long as it carries on working, I don't care. But Gravity, for me, is this kind of force that is out there that does stuff. Um, I'm not looking at Charlie. I'm just, just not looking at him. Um, and I think, I sometimes think that God's power is like that. Just this kind of force that just, boom, does stuff. 
kind of shapeless. But it isn't. Throughout the New Testament, the kind of thing that God's power enables people to do is to suffer and to be weak and still to hope that in the end, resurrection-shaped power will bring them through. Paul's mission is not just empowered by Christ, it is shaped by Christ. He goes in a Christ-like way. I wonder whether that's why. This is another conundrum of the passage. When they're about to beat him with rods, you would have thought that that would have been the point at which to say, "Uh, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. You may want to put those rods away. This is not some backwater place. This is Philippi. It's a little Rome. They know what it means if you say you're a Roman citizen, and they know that it means hands off. Why doesn't Paul deploy that much earlier in the story? I think it's because he understands and knows that suffering is a part of what it means to follow Christ. And he wants to model that for the church in Philippi. He wants to leave behind him a testimony to the fact that Christian living means following Jesus into suffering. Of course, he also wants to make sure that the church doesn't get unduly harassed after he's left. And I think that's why, at the end, he does pull out the Roman citizen card. Just to add a touch of credibility in the eyes of the authorities to this little fledgling Christian movement. There's no point in them suffering for no purpose. But fundamentally, Paul's mission follows the shape of Christ's mission, which is suffering and then deliverance. So Paul's mission is Christ-empowered. Paul's mission is shaped by Christ. And Paul's mission unites people in Christ. I imagine there were many more converts in Philippi, but these are the three Luke picks out. And I think that is deliberate, because these are people whose paths would not cross. A wealthy merchant woman, a slave girl with an evil spirit, and a sort of stolid, respectable, middle-class Roman. These aren't people who would talk to one another. Certainly, if you're going to found a church, these are not the three people you would think of sending to do it. But, Paul knows that the gospel unites people under the name of Christ. Do come in. And because the gospel unites people in Christ, it unites people from all sorts of backgrounds. So that's what Paul is doing. Preaching Christ in Christ's power, in a Christ-shaped way, uniting people in the name of Christ. What about us? What does this passage say to us? I think genuinely it's not very complicated. But it's jolly hard. I think this passage says to us, preach Christ, speak about Jesus, go about doing it in the way that Jesus did, 
and do it to everyone indiscriminately. And do it knowing that that is a path that leads to suffering and ultimately to vindication. This is going to work. There are a whole load of um, strategies that we could use uh, for building a church. A whole load of plans that we could put into effect. Paul does some planning here. But then at the end of the day, what actually makes the difference is just people hearing about Jesus and the demonstration of his power. And the demonstration of his power could mean anything from an earthquake shaking this building to one person having their heart opened to receive the message about Christ. That's what we're looking for and praying for as we speak about him indiscriminately in his power in ways that are Jesus-shaped. talk beyond my time, as I tend to do. This is a personal challenge to me. I think I am, as a rule, very happy to talk to anybody about God. I think I am, as a rule, very uncomfortable to talk to anybody about Jesus. And I think that is because I know that it is the risen Jesus who is directing this mission. And it is personal encounter with him that changes people. And it is when I bring him into the conversation that stuff gets uncomfortable. For Paul and Silas, it gets uncomfortable to the point of being in jail. For me, it will just get uncomfortable to the point of having a slightly awkward conversation. If you're anything like me, let's pray that the Lord Jesus will give us the power to testify to him, and that as we do that, he will show his power in opening hearts to receive him. I'm going to pray that now, and then the guys are going to lead us in some some worship and response.